Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and the ideas that are shaping our world. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about race, language, war, mental health, the future of humanity, and the meaning of life. It's often been observed by sociologists of religion that when people become less religious, they don't necessarily become less spiritual. Indeed, there's some indication that the opposite might even be the case. We may be less inclined to participate in organised religious activities, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're less inclined to believe or to pray or to meditate. People like to be thought of as spiritual. Conversely, materialistic is often used as an insult or a form of criticism. Not only do we like to be spiritual but not religious, but we prefer to have spiritual rather than material ambitions. But that in itself may be a bit of a problem, because it automatically pits the spiritual against the material in a way that leads us to an understanding of human nature in which we are if you like, forced to choose. Are you a spiritual person or a material one? And that may be a false choice as well as a forced one. Rowan Williams was the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury, having been a leading academic theologian at Oxford and Cambridge universities. His intellectual sources range widely, but ever since he completed his PhD on the theology of Vladimir Lossky, an early 20th century Russian theologian, Eastern Orthodox Christianity has been central to them. In the same way, his intellectual interests are vast, but somewhere near their centre lies the endlessly fascinating question of how we understand the human person. And both of these themes come together in his latest book, Looking East in Winter, Contemporary Thought and the Eastern Christian Tradition. Rowan, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much indeed, Nick. Looking East in Winter draws in a number of modern thinkers, but it reaches back long before them to what is perhaps the classic compilation of orthodox spiritual writings, the Philokalia. Can you tell us what the Philokalia is, when it was written mm. and compiled, and how significant it is? Well, the Philokalia in its present form appears in the 18th century in Greece, and it's the result of the work of a number of very learned and very committed Greek monks who wanted to try and pull together all the most significant texts in the Greek Christian tradition over the preceding, well, almost 1500 years, in fact. So when it was written is an almost impossible question to answer because the earliest texts there are from the late 4th century and the latest ones are 15th century. So an attempt really to, to set out a basic set of orientations about the life of the spirit, the human person, the human destiny, and, and the techniques of prayer. It's published by Faber in the UK. And I think I'm right in saying that Eliot, T.S. Eliot, who was a director of, of Faber and Faber when it was published, had to fight his directors to convince them that it was worth publishing, and it's never been out of print since. That's right, I've heard that story too. And, and yes, it, it's always been in print, it's been in paperback. And although the existing four volumes don't represent the whole piece. I gather that the fifth volume is at last going to appear sometime soon. 
Now, the monastic tradition from which the Filiocalia's texts are drawn is often depicted as ascetic, otherworldly, and concerned with the life of the spirit rather than, and sometimes in deliberate opposition to, the life of the body. But that's not quite accurate or fair, is it? No, it's not. There's an ascetic tradition, obviously, simply in the fact that, in the terms of the Filicalia, to become the person you actually are, you will need to develop a set of very sharp diagnostic tools about all the ways that stop you seeing the world properly and seeing yourself truthfully. So asceticism isn't, isn't a kind of flat denial, saying, OK, let's deny the body, let's deny history, let's deny society, and all will be well. It's more a way of saying, let's look at the different ways of illusory understandings of myself and my world that I live with and see what we need to do to get rid of those. So there's a more subtle, a more nuanced understanding of the body and society and the social nature of human beings than people sometimes imagine. That being said, it's true that the Philokalia has sometimes been used to promote a very unworldly spirituality in a not very helpful sense. But one of the people I quote a bit in the book is that great 20th century Russian saint and martyr, Mother Maria of Paris, Maria Skoptsova, who fascinatingly says at one point, people who think of themselves or are thought of as worldly are in fact very unworldly because they're the people who don't see the world as it really is. This tension, if you like, around worldliness can be traced back, can't it, to some of the ways in which different ideas of the goodness of the world are articulated in the New Testament because mm -hmm. sometimes the world is framed in such a way as the kind of thing that we need to avoid. It's, it's, it mm -hmm. contaminates us. And sometimes, of course, it is the product of a good creator and it is to be valued mm -hmm. and cherished. It's a tension that runs right through some of the most important texts, isn't it? Like the Gospel of John and the Letters of John. On the one hand, the world is, yes, definitely an area of untruthfulness, an area of illusion and fantasy and destructiveness even. At the same time, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it's exactly the same word. So it's as if we're being told there is something before us, within us, something about us, which is utterly loved by its maker. And we couldn't begin to understand what the world or the universe, finite reality, meant without understanding that it's there because of God's love. That's the utterly foundational principle. And then when that creation tries to justify itself, explain itself, serve itself purely and simply in its own terms, when it locks itself away from its creator, then it becomes untruthful. It becomes a source of, of destructiveness in itself. So the, the person of faith really has to walk quite a tightrope there, saying, OK, at every moment I've got to be alert for the signs of untruthfulness, the systematic lie that pervades the world, without ever coming to the conclusion that the world itself is some kind of lie. I wonder if we can read anything into the fact that the same word is used to capture both those senses of world. If it was a different word, you could almost separate them in your mind. Mm, but the, mm. the point is they're interpenetrated with one another, aren't they? They're intermingled inextricably. That's right, yes, because there isn't a sort of nice bit of the world and a nasty bit of the world. It's the discovery that St Augustine makes in the Confessions when he raises the question, where does evil come from? And he's very tempted by the solution, which for a long time he himself adopted before he became a Christian. Well, there are nice things in the world and there are nasty things in the world. There are good things and there are bad things. So you've got to work out where the bad stuff comes from. 
And eventually he has a kind of breakthrough which says, actually, there's no such thing as bad stuff. There's a whole lot of really bad and limiting and damaging perspectives on things, which, if you like, turn the world into something less than itself. So to be liberated spiritually is actually to be liberated into the full scale of the world, the, the grandeur and the fullness of the world. It's not to limit your relation to reality. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reading Our Times. Don't miss our other episodes on war, the future, race, language, and much more. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not take 30 seconds to subscribe, share an episode with a friend, leave us a review, or give us a quick rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners to find us. I'm pleased you brought up Augustine and evil there, because the question of how you see the world is inevitably going to shape whether and the extent to which it is, according to the Christian view, fallen or not. And I strongly detect that Eastern Orthodox traditions have a, if you like, a more positive attitude, if that's the right way of putting it, to the fallenness of human nature than we are often familiar Mm. with in Latin Christendom. Mm. And a lot of that Latin Christendom view is traceable back to Augustine and Mm. a sense that our fallenness is absolute and we are fully degraded. Whereas, I don't know if ambivalent is quite the right word, but there is a more positive attitude, if Mm. you like, to the effects of the fall in Eastern Orthodoxy. I think that's true up to a point, but only up to a point. The trouble is Augustine has become a kind of bogeyman. In lots of theological and non-theological discussion, people think, oh, he's, he's the one who hated women, he's the one who hated sex. Look at him carefully, of course, and he's, he's saying no such things. He's a man of his time, but he's also somebody who's deeply committed to the idea of the world's goodness. And for him, the tragedy of our human situation is precisely that we are created for such bliss and such splendour, and that we have absolutely blown it. And it wouldn't be so tragic if we didn't, as it were, have within us the divine image in all its glory. Because what would there be to spoil if there wasn't this wonderful mystery at the heart of of human nature? Now, Augustine is, I I think, temperamentally someone who writes in a more tragic and more sombre vein than some some of the Easterns. But At heart, they're all of them convinced that the world, including our own bodiliness, communicates God to us. The world is, in some sense, God speaking to us. And that's where you have this very pervasive, very important notion coming up in early Greek Christianity of the world being full of logoi, words in Greek. The logos, the word of God, the eternal word of God who is incarnate in Christ, contains within itself or himself all these communications, these offers of relationship, you might say, that are expressed in all the aspects of the created world. So everywhere we turn in the world, there is a word waiting for us in the sense that God is extending an invitation to relationship with him through this situation, through this thing, through this person. So all of these are logoi, they're all words. And to see them all cohering in Christ, the eternal word, is to understand that from all eternity, God is offering relation, living himself in relation and offering relation to what he makes. And that's all, as it were, not fragmented, but multiplied, like white light coming through a prism in the world we know. And that, that deeply relational 
inviting sense of what the world is like is utterly fundamental, I think, in the Greek Christian perspective. And part of the problem then is our inability to see that clearly, isn't mm-hmm. it? You write at one point that the essential character of sin or fallenness in the Philokalia is our inability to see the world, yes, including yes. our fellow human beings, without passion. And passion, you put in scare quotes. So explain to us what you mean by that. <laughs> oh, well, yes, how long have we got? <laughs> it's a difficult word because on the whole these days, we tend to think passion is a good thing. If you're interviewing somebody for a a job in a primary school, you want them to say, I'm passionate about working with children, don't you? And we think that's that's good, and rightly People so. People are passionate about everything these days, passionate aren't about they? everything, yeah. yes. Whenever I see a, a CV with the word passion in it, something in me groans a little bit, I have to say. <laughs> but in the context of what the early Christian Greek writers are saying, it's something very different, because for them, a passion was the opposite of an action. That's to say, passion is something that happens to you. Action is something that you do. Now, The more you have stuff happening to you, the more you are at the mercy of circumstances. And so passions are all the things that, if you like, are somewhere other than your choice and your freedom. The more you're subject to stuff that's coming at you, your decisions, your policies, your vision moulded by stuff coming at you, the less actually free you are, the less you really act. So when you're overtaken by anger, by sexual greed, by physical greed, by jealousy, and all these other things. When you're overtaken by those, something's happening to you. Something of your freedom is being shrunk. And you need to get past that shrinking of your freedom to a stage where you can really act again. So when the writers in the Philokalia say that we have to aim at being dispassionate, they don't mean that we sit there sort of fingering our chins and being judicious all the time. They simply mean that we we get beyond a stage of just being reactive, just living by our instincts, just sort of lashing out when stimuli come near us. We can actually sit, breathe, see, respond thoughtfully, generously, and at the end of the day, lovingly, which is why you have this very counterintuitive statement in some documents that love comes out of being dispassionate. Love is not an extreme case of passion. Love is an extreme case of action. It's really something that you do. It's your freedom actually pouring out, unconstrained by the anger and the lust and the jealousy and all the rest of it that habitually makes you less than human. And it's that dehumanising lust or anger or our distorting understanding of the rest of creation and in particular Mm. other human beings in creation that lies at the heart of our fallenness and our inability Mm -hmm. to recognise God and our inability to live well. I don't think that the the ascetical tradition is saying that there's anything fundamentally wrong with the passions as such. We, We require these reactive instincts to survive. So there is a good use of anger and a good use of fear and a good use of all sorts of things. Question is, what is most uniquely, most specially human about us? Well, not that set of instincts that we share with the rest of creation, but something a little bit more, which allows us precisely to respect and care for and serve creation. This is the sense in which some of the great Greek writers like Maximus the Confessor in the 7th century will say that we have a kind of priestly role in regard to the rest of creation. We're not separate from it, we're not higher than it, we're not isolated from it. But within the whole 
created material world, we as human beings have the task of, if you like, bringing into, into focus, bringing into language, the dignity, the beauty of the world, serving that beauty, that order, promoting that harmony. So we reflect the creator for the creation and perhaps reflect the creation for the creator as well. We have a, yes. in a priestly intermediary role in that regard. Very much so, very much so, yes. Which is why one of the great books on the work of Maximus the Confessor is called Microcosm and Mediator. It's about the, the picture of humanity in the work of St. Maximus as a microcosm, as a reality in which you know, the whole mystery of the created world is somehow contained, but a mediator, somebody who speaks for the world to God. And that's why the work of Christ in the Incarnation is not just, if you like, a problem-solving mission, it's the, the releasing and the fulfilling of the human vocation, the human calling to communion with God in and with the created world. Well, there were two themes in that particular response I really wanted to focus on. One was on predictably Christ and the other is on communion. But starting with the latter, there was a, a seminal Eastern Orthodox text published about 30 years ago now, written by John Zizoulis, being as communion. That idea that we only exist in communion is really very, very important to Eastern Orthodoxy, isn't it? And to some extent, a little bit lost in a more individualistic emphasis on mm. our humanity mm. in our Latin Christian world, isn't it? It is, though I think I'd probably qualify Latin Christian by saying largely post-15th century Latin Christian. The notion of communion is, is fundamental. And for somebody like Zizulus, whose work has been so influential in the ecumenical scene as well as in other ways, for someone like Zeulus, the point of believing in God as Holy Trinity, that's to say there is never any action of God, any dimension of God's being that is not relational. There is always a flow of life or of gift, if you want to put it that way, between the points, we call them persons for the sake of convenience, within the divine life or that are the divine life, always being shaped by, being made alive by one another. And you can't, if you like, put any kind of conceptual chisel in between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Christian language and say, well, these are bits of God. They're all entirely divine. They're all entirely bound up with each other. So, says Zizoulis, if that's what the most real reality imaginable is, we shouldn't be exactly surprised if the reality that comes from the hand of such a god reflects that interdependence, that interweaving of life. And that's very much in tune with a lot of the concerns that writers like McGilchrist and others, or physicists like David Bohm in the last few decades, and rather radical biologists like Rupert Sheldrake, all of them have emphasised in different ways that the interconnectedness of our world is something we have just systematically underrated for the last couple of hundred years. We've bought into a, a picture of the world as if it were just a set of absolutely hard-shelled individual substances that bump into one another and have effects on one another, rather than being linked by any number of connections that we can't always trace with any precision. And if that's true of the world in general, then of course it's true of our human world, which is why individualism as such is deeply inadequate as a model of who we are and who we might be. And understanding that idea of who we are 
shapes our understanding of how we might be what we could be. What I mean by that is that if you have a kind of a monad version of human nature, mm. you can have almost an external force that plucks it out of this world and, and, mm-hmm. and quote-unquote saves it. Yes. That emphatically isn't the understanding of salvation in the Christian scriptures, let alone in the Eastern mm. Orthodox tradition. And You say at one point that it's not that we acquire something extra to our humanity through the work of Christ, or that something in our humanity is supplanted by grace. They're both models of individualized mm. salvation. It's the relational ontology, to use the language, that underpins yes. how we become the people we could be. That's right. What we have to be delivered from is not a burden of sin in the sense of having a, a kind of bad report card, which is written off. What we need to be delivered from is is a mode of human existence, which is wrapped up in itself, and so incapable of being realistically and life-givingly related, both to other bits of creation, including people, and to God. So what you'd expect salvation to mean is, well, precisely what Scripture says. It's the kingdom of God. It's that new territory, that new landscape, where God's purpose is what shapes everything, what rules everything, what gives sense and meaning to everything. And so in the Eastern Christian tradition, very strongly you have this notion of the liturgy, the the sacramental worship of the church, being, if you like, the real presence of the kingdom of God. Not just the real presence of the body and blood of, of Christ, crucial as that is, but because of that, the real presence of the kingdom. So if you go to an Orthodox church, if you attend Orthodox worship, you'll see all these icons around you, the images of the saints. And they're not just decoration. They're there to say, you are now part of a new society and you are invisibly surrounded by other human persons touched by God's call and God's grace and God's love. Their prayers, their love, their adoration are all imperceptibly opening doors for you. Mm. So that's why one of the chapters in the book is called Liturgical Humanism, because it's an attempt to spell out with a lot of help from a wonderful 20th century writer called Olivier Clément to spell out what it is for our humanity, our enriched and renewed humanity, to find expression in the liturgy and worship of the church and how the liturgy and worship of the church in turn enlarges and enriches our humanness. Well, that was one of the chapters that most struck me in the book. Um, Good. Partly (laughs) because it's a slightly quixotic and provocative phrase, liturgical humanism, and partly because both of those words are at best misunderstood and at worst completely abandoned in our Mm -hmm, contemporary mm -hmm. society. So I just want to spend a little time probing them because liturgy will strike some people as basically ritual. But at one point you say specifically liturgy is not the same as ritual. So could Mm. you spell out Mm. how it's different? Mm. Yes. Well, as is often said, the the root of the word liturgy is a pair of Greek words which simply mean the people's work. This is a job done by a community. So the point of liturgy is this is an action with a beginning, a middle and an end. It takes you from one place to another. And when we worship sacramentally in the Christian church, especially in Holy Communion, we are taken from one place to another. We are taken from the isolation into which we're always slipping back, taken back into the kingdom, back into community. Now, ritual is just a way of doing things. So naturally enough, when we perform liturgy, we do it in a ritual way. 
even if we don't think that's what we're doing. We have conventions, we have habits, and it's as present in a charismatic prayer service as it is in the most elaborate patriarchal liturgy in a cathedral in Moscow. But liturgy is this process of moving from one place to another, moving from your isolation, your unlikeness, your alienation, into a situation where your defences and boundaries against others have been loosened, where you're capable of acting together in a new way. And, crucially, this then equips you to go and express that liturgical loosening of the boundaries in the work you do in the world to transform it to a more just and a more peaceful situation. The other key word is humanism, because in my lifetime, that word has come to mean something which is specifically non or indeed anti-religious. Mm. Whereas if we were to have had this conversation 100 years ago, that would have been not on the cards at all. The most mm. influential book of humanism published in the 20th century was Jacques Maritain's Integral Humanism, which you meant at one point. Mm. So it's probably worth you spelling out why humanism? Yes. Why are you talking yes. about humanism there? Mm. It's a good question. It's, it's certainly one of those words which I think Christians ought to be interested in reclaiming. And Amen. my great predecessor, Michael Ramsey, was one of those who repeatedly talked about Christian humanism back in the 1960s, at precisely a time when humanism was coming in most people's minds to mean an irreligious view. Now, the tradition of Christian humanism looks back in the Western context mostly to the period of the early Renaissance, a period where people were reclaiming, rediscovering, rereading lots of the works of classical Greece and Rome, and many concluded that the, the kind of Christian culture they were living in was a bit too narrow. They needed a more expansive view of what human beings were and were capable of, and they turned to the classical world to help them to fill that out. And I don't think any of them felt that they were, in doing that, somehow abandoning their belief in God. So. If you ask about Christian humanism, you can find it in John Calvin as much as you can in a Catholic like Erasmus. Everybody is interested in reclaiming this more expansive, more ambitious view, you might almost say, of humanity. And when Jacques Maritain and others of his generation, Catholic writers in the 20th century, talked about Christian or Catholic humanism, that was very much what they also were saying. We've had what's perhaps a rather dry, rather one-dimensional picture of humanity encouraged by a, a rather unambitious, rather dull theology. Well, let's open the windows again. Let's look at the sky again. Let's get out into the fresh air again and think about what it might be to believe that the Christian faith liberates human beings to be more than they thought they were capable of being. And that's also why there is a, a line, not a very straight line, I have to say, but a line between the work of somebody like Jacques Maritain and the work of the liberation theologians. Some of them concluded that Maritain was too much of an old-fashioned European social democrat and wanted to push a lot further and make use of bits of Marxism and so forth. But underneath it all, there is a fundamentally very similar conviction. The Christian gospel is there so that we may become human. And in becoming human, we actually become more fully and richly images of the divine. Well, that leads to our final area of discussion, 
which is politics. Maritain mm. was, of course, a very political thinker. Um, the liberation theologians, of course, were very political. Again, in the popular imagination, the monastic tradition from which the Fulicalia is drawn is not political. Mm. It siphons itself away from the world. And yet, one of the things that resonates from your book is that there are enormous political implications for us if we do adapt this understanding of createdness and this understanding mm. of our existence as communion. Mm. It's a very big question to end on, really, but, <laughs> but spell out a little bit of what, what politics in the light of this understanding of Christian humanism looks like. Mm. Well, very briefly, I think the, the answer is a politics that grows out of this sort of vision of the human would focus on two or three major themes. The first is, and I can't emphasize this too strongly, the sense of mutual implication. We are involved with one another. There is no way in which my good, my safety, my security can be guaranteed unless it's bound up with the security and the well-being of others. It's a pragmatic as well as a sort of ideological vision. Second thing is, if that's the case, then every human being that I encounter has a claim not only on my reverence or my respect, but also on my gratitude and my joy. Potentially, there is a gift there for me to receive. And that may be really, really difficult to see or to understand or to negotiate. It may be practically impossible at times. But that's the point I have to keep circling back to. And thirdly, I think because of that, I have to develop and maintain, cultivate a very strong capacity for self-questioning. Am I taking for granted my comfort, my priorities, my interests? And that takes you right back to the, the ascetical self-questioning we started with. What am I not seeing? What is my comfort, my complacency and my, my comfort zone not allowing me to see in the world? I quite like living the kind of life I do as a a male bourgeois Westerner, what does that stop me seeing? It doesn't mean that where I am or who I am is, is wicked or evil, but there are things that it's stopping me seeing. Mm. So can I be released to see better? I wonder if I might also add a fourth to that as well, which is putting the material created world, the environment, as we call it, absolutely at the centre of politics. Because, because just as we've said, it's impossible to think of Eastern Orthodoxy outside of the context of our priestly relationship to reality. Politics focused on the environment, no. possibly, is another as well. I, I would take that for granted as running through all of that, because, of course, the, the fundamental lie that we tell ourselves is that we're not really part of creation. And that is emphatically one of the things that we are made incapable of seeing by our, our comfort and our, our laziness. So there is a deeply environmental concern here. And if I didn't um, flag it up as one of the elements, it's really because I see it as woven so tightly into everything we do and say about about that. We are implicated not only with other human beings, but with the world we're in. And if we haven't learned that in the last 12 months, I don't know what we have learned. The book is called Looking East in Winter, Contemporary Thought and the Eastern Christian Tradition. Rowan Williams, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. A pleasure. Thank you very much. Next week, I'll be speaking to Adrian Pabst, about post-liberal politics. What matters is not so much contractual ties as bonds of reciprocity and actually ultimately gift exchange. Because really, the anthropology at the heart of post-liberalism is that, that life is a gift, nature's a gift. We're custodians rather than proprietors. 
Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Stanley, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast. <laughs>